bandages right up to the top of his head, all round his ears. Flora's worried about Griffin. I had a terrible feeling last night. I felt he was in desperate trouble. He meddled in things men should leave alone. Not the slightest clue. That's where the clues are. He wasn't leaving anything to chance. There must be a way back. God knows there's a way back. Are you doing help? Cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This week, we are kicking off the first of three Halloween-specific episodes, kickstarting things with the 1933 Universal Horror feature, The Invisible Man. We've done several Universal features since this podcast started, most famously the Frankenstein movies. We did the first three several years ago, which you should listen to. It was a lot of fun. And we've also talked about Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't think we've talked about Dracula. Not that I know of. I haven't even seen it myself. We're talking about The Invisible Man based on the book by H.G. Wells, originally published in the late 1800s. We've talked about other books in the horror genre. Jekyll and Hyde. Just a lot of commonalities to Jekyll and Hyde when I was watching this. Is this a first time watch for anybody? Have we all seen this before? I have. It's one of the most underrated of the Universal Horror films. Quite possibly my favorite, right up there with Creature. Yeah, I've seen this before and I agree. I think it's one of the strongest for many reasons, which we'll dig into. I've seen this before. I I liked revisiting it. And I always applaud its tight 71 minute running time. I miss the 71-minute movie. You have no idea. Anytime I can watch a classic and knock out three or four that are 60 to 80 minutes, I feel like I've accomplished something with my life. I'm going to be the weirdo. I've seen this several times. I think my thoughts are going to be different than everybody else's. It's going to make for a fun episode. (laughs) In case you haven't read the H.G. Wells book or if you haven't seen the 1933 movie, this is directed by James Whale, who did... The Frankenstein movies. He also did The Old Dark House, which is another movie you should definitely go watch. It tells the story of a scientist, Dr. Jack Griffin, played by Claude Rains, who is experimenting, always a mark of a man in the 1930s who is doing some weird stuff with science that he should not be doing. He's conducted his own experiment and has created something that turns him invisible. However, the serum has made him mad because those two things tend to be synonymous in films of this age, and is going on a killing spree throughout the streets of London. Along the way, he has some former friends, Dr. Kemp, played by William Harrigan, and his beloved Flora, played by a pre-Titanic Gloria Stewart, who are trying to bring him back to reality. There is not a whole lot that happens outside of that for 71 minutes, I'll start with my general thoughts on this movie. I definitely understand why it's more underrated than the other Universal features, and I also understand why it's not usually presented alongside the Gilman and Frankenstein's creature. It's really hard to make an invisible man frightening because you can't see him. So this movie balances horror with more humor, compliments of Claude Rains' voice and his phantom acting that happens throughout the movie. It's definitely a more subtle humor than I think most people are used to. This isn't necessarily very broad. It's a bit more childish. The way he finds singing nursery rhymes as he's running down the street and you just see a pair of pants. There's a lot more salacious humor in this because everybody knows that the Invisible Man is naked when he's committing 
evil deeds. I get the symbolism of this movie. We can touch on subtext in a second. For me, it's always hard to get into this movie because it's a lot of talking. And by a lot of talking, it's a lot of talking. Because even when the Invisible Man is doing something, you have to have talking or else you can't really tell what's going on. You have a lot of actors acting opposite nothing. And that has to be incredibly hard to do. But it also makes a film that's 71 minutes to me feel very plodding. The history of this movie is interesting as well. If I had to chart my favorite universal horror features from this time period, this is usually on the bottom. Sam Drea, tell me why I'm wrong. You're crazy. You're nuts. Yes, there's a lot of talking, but I found all of the dialogue to be giving me moments that felt believable and tense. There are a couple moments when the police who are going to go after him are reticent to share any information because he could be in the room. Or truly it's when Dr. Kemp, who he is really terrorizing personally, is glancing around and he never knows if he's alone in the room. And I found that much more scary than... Yes, I can see if Dracula's there. I can see if a werewolf is there. The idea of being in a room and not knowing if someone's in there with you, if they're watching, if they're plotting, and then tying that to the fact that for a while the authority doesn't even believe that that person exists, that it's in your head, that is a truly terrifying thought. They do a good job of setting up those moments. One of the reasons this was so successful at the time and something that it's still, the special effects are pretty effective. They're definitely charming, but there are a few things in there that I'm like, oh my God, if I walked in a room and saw someone with half of their face missing and not missing in the normal, oh, their jaws missing and you could see all this blood and viscera. No, just missing. I would turn into... Una O'Connor, who's the true star of this movie, and I would be shrieking for days. I'm definitely biased because The Invisible Man is probably, if not my absolute favorite universal horror film, for quite a few reasons. This movie as a whole is a testament to why the 1930s is my favorite decade in film. As you guys mentioned, that 71-minute runtime, and you really have the full story arc, so much gets done, so much is said in that amount of time and just the visuals for its time, the special effects are just amazing. And they were done so simply. They dressed Claude Rains in black velvet, except for his clothes, and then filmed him against a black velvet background. It doesn't get simpler than that, but the end result is really astonishing for a film from the 1930s. There's so much to love about this. I have to mention this because not a lot of people really realize that this is Claude Rains' first film. How he can pull off such an incredible performance, such a difficult part, because he's not even on screen for 99% of the movie. That's such a huge positive note to his talent. I love the sound of his voice. It makes perfect sense that he was cast in this role because he could be understood so clearly. He could put such a menacing tone on his voice. And I just love it. The deranged, subtle humor. I love seeing Gloria Stewart. I have a really big attachment to her. It's not a creature. It's someone like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's someone who plays with science to their own detriment. And that's not something that's covered a whole lot in this era. In general, it's just really, really ahead of its time. Going on Drea's point is he actually is a pretty menacing, pretty terrifying person compared to some of the other movies. Comparing it to Creature from the Black Lagoon, for instance, he's a nuisance of himself. But The Invisible Man, I read it on IMDb, his body count a little bit of a spoiler, is 122 more than any other universal monster. If he was walking around in real life, he would be a pretty scary guy, whether you could see him or not. Oh, for sure. He's a terrorist. It's different than the other ones, too. He's also more human in a lot of ways. The madness is clear from the beginning. And there's something to be said that hopefully we can talk about, because I know that's one of the ways 
that it differs from the book. In the book, I believe he was mad to begin with. And in the movie, the madness comes with the drug that he's given himself. He's a straight up menacing terrorist. He has a bloodlust. It's not revenge. He hasn't been done wrong. He is just out for blood. I didn't know this was Claude Rain's first performance on film. That's amazing to me because he has such a nice and consistent presence. And he also has this thing where he rolls his R's several times very deliberately. And I'll always give extra points for that. As far as Claude Rains goes, he was first chosen for this part because James Whale, the director, heard his audition tape in another room and the light bulb just kind of went off. Oh, he's very clearly understood by his voice. He has an amazing speaking voice, which he does. He was really perfect for the part, even though he had been only a stage actor before that. This role was initially supposed to go to Boris Karloff, but he and James Whale had a falling out. James Whale also believed that his voice wasn't educated enough for this part. He did also have a lisp that hindered his chances of playing the Invisible Man. But that also would have been very interesting. There's different rumors, depending on what you read, that the lisp was blamed, even though him and Karloff had had this huge argument. Under mysterious circumstances, nobody knows what the argument was about, but they never talked after that. You also have Carl Lemley trying to cut off Karloff's salary. And they considered a bunch of other actors, such as Chester Morris, Paul Lucas, and Colin Clive. Colin Clive actually flat out turned it down. James Whale was also a replacement. Cyril Gardner was supposed to direct it. For Cyril Gardner, Claude Rains was his first choice. So it's interesting how this story changes depending on who's telling it. Sam's totally right. Karloff is such a big hulking presence. The minute that he steps into that saloon, or the costuming would have to be far bigger and bulkier. You'd already be intimidated. When Reigns enters that room in that first sequence, he is tall because the camera's shooting up. But then when he climbs down those three or four stairs, you realize that he's just the height of an average man. I think that illusion would be completely shattered if you had Karloff doing it, because you would be expecting this big figure. But we've seen this story when we talked about Jekyll and Hyde. Both of them are written by H.G. Wells, correct? Or am I totally wrong? Robert Louis Stevenson, never mind. That was going to be my guess. I was going to say it. <laughs> I didn't want to sound stupid. <laughs> Coming out around the late 1800s with the rise of science, it's not surprising that Jekyll and Hyde and this have similarities. The distinction here, as Drea mentioned, is... In Jekyll and Hyde, or Jekyll and Hyde, God, I'm never going to be able to not say that. Frederick March's character is driven mad by this id that comes out of him, because it's all about the id and the ego and the superego. So that character is just his animal primitivism just coming through. Whereas in The Invisible Man, Claude Rains' character, the whole point of H.G. Wells' book is to look at this concept of immorality and how we only have a sense of right and wrong because we can be seen, because we know what the consequences are. If you erase being seen out of something, what would you do? Many movies about men have done this since this movie came out. Claude Rains totally has this bloodlust from the minute he tells that cop, I'm going to throttle you, and he just starts strangling people. Although I would feel that it would just be easier to carry a knife and invisibly shank somebody, but I didn't write the movie, so go figure that one. It just seems very exhausting to have to strangle people chronically. Am I the only one that was thinking of his methods? You'd see the knife coming towards you, whereas you can't see his hands. So yeah, you could mix okay. it up and start bringing some tools in. In rewatching it this time, I love the mythology of things. Like, oh, did they give any thought to this? I'm assuming it's also in the novel, which I haven't read. He does this exposition dump on Kemp, explaining how the invisibility works. And when he adds the detail, well, I'm not invisible for the two hours after I eat. I was like, that's amazing. There was just something about that that captured my imagination in the best kind of way. 
And I spent a while thinking of what that would look like. Absolutely. That's a really good right? point. I don't think that they would have illustrated that, but it would have been very interesting to see. Another point about a knife is for the time... Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Did you just say another point about the knife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't let an unintentional pun go unremarked. Oh my goodness. But I don't think back then they would have done that. I'm just trying to visualize it in my head. The only way that you could really see that someone was being stabbed aside from the knife movement would be the blood. And I don't think they would have done that in the 30s. In horror movies back then, if someone was getting stabbed, it would just be the knife thrusting into the person, them screaming and falling on the floor, no blood whatsoever. They would have to show the blood to show that he was being stabbed to make it convincing. It wouldn't look right without it, and I don't think they would have done it. Okay, so now it makes sense when you all put it like that. It's also worth pointing out, this is probably one of the few universal monster movies that actually took liberally from the book. It's a fairly faithful adaptation. I haven't read the book a very long time. Most of the major events are still there. It takes place around the same time period. You don't really know a whole lot about Griffin in terms of his backstory. Although in the novel, he does not have a fiance or friends, which I understand why they gave him that. You need to have some people that can remind you that this person was once good. You don't want to just have, as we know with the Hayes Code, this completely amoral figure who doesn't care for anybody and nobody cares for him running around. In the novel, he's already insane and he's entirely motivated by this lust for power. In the film, it's presented as a drug addiction, which is very similar to Jekyll and Hyde. For the most part, this is like the book. A testament to the script, which is attributed to R.C. Sheriff, that they actually decided to go with adapting the book completely. He also was the writer on Goodbye, Mr. Chips, in case anybody wanted to know that. On that note, I do have to mention another piece of trivia that I read. Apparently, when he came to Hollywood to write the movie, he asked Universal for a copy of the original novel, and they literally did not have one. (laughs) The only thing that they had were 14 different treatments done by previous screenwriters to try to adapt it, and they were so far off, it's ridiculous. Apparently, there was one set in Tsarist Russia, and another one literally set on Mars. I can't imagine how that would have turned out. (laughs) looking at the actual plot of the movie i brought up earlier the whole concept of what would you be able to do if you couldn't be seen it almost seems like griffin's plot is very stupid he wants to take over the world but he knows he can't do it as an invisible man he needs a visible person so he enlists kemp as his i guess public face so that he can go on this killing spree and he just starts wantonly killing people he lets a train derail and kills like a hundred people and is throwing searchers off a cliff he's pretty open about straight up murdering people he never really seems to have an end goal he just talks about wanting to dominate the world but there is no way shape or form in how he actually plans to accomplish this i kept saying during the movie this seems like a really ill thought out plan He just seems like, I want to take over the world, but I have no conceivable way to actually accomplish that. I would feel like it would just be easier for him to maybe, like, gaslight a politician or something and then try to take over the world that way. Hindsight is twenty twenty. That's a testament to his mind being deranged. When you think about it, I don't know if you're into true crime, but a lot of those people had plans that would have never worked out like Charles Manson for instance that's actually realistic in a way that he's so crazy and bloodthirsty but he doesn't actually have a sound plan to back it up because he doesn't have a sound mind and nothing makes him happy you don't really understand what his motivation is short of power so he murders all these people but there's never this moment of contentment that comes from that. And that's also something that's in the novel as well. He remains this bitter, irritable person. And really the only time that he's content is, spoiler alert, in death, which is the one time you actually see him. There is no moment of accomplishment for him. 
in all of this. There's no motive either. He's just killing willy-nilly. Like you mentioned, one of the best changes to the script is that he is given some people who care about him and he has that kryptonite in Flora. And I just have to say, Gloria Stewart is amazing. She's very wooden in this film, but that's only because her scenes are basically stolen by Claude Rains. If she was paired opposite somebody a little bit less experienced as far as theater and acting goes, she would have stood out more. I'm a big Gloria Stewart fan. That's part of the reason why I love this movie. She is incredible in this. There's something about actresses, particularly in the 30s, who are so beautiful. It's crazy to watch them talk. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a naturalism that came into the beauty of actresses later on that for a while was just like, no, we would like beautiful women in glamorous dresses. Thank you. On the character's motivation, I actually think one of the reasons this story is such a great and specific prototype for so many horror villains to come is because of his lack of clear motivation. You could look at most Bond villains and have the same thought, but I could also look at Michael Myers in Halloween. There's so many horror villains that the most chilling part of oh, there's nothing about him that can be reasoned down because he's working from a point of complete lack of reason. And that, again, goes back to why I find this a truly terrifying character that transcends. If I know what someone's after, then they might be able to be pacified. If they're after nothing and they're just killing to kill, because he didn't let people die on a train He changed the tracks so the train went off course. He's an intentional killer, and he's also someone who delights in it. Him driving Dr. Kemp mad is amazing. Sorry, R.I.P. Dr. Kemp. He messes with him, and it's a playful... Maybe that's the humor Kristen was alluding to a bit, but there's a playful cat and mouse. Playful for the Claude Rains character, for Griffin. Definitely not for Kemp who's for sure the mouse, but when he's trying to escape and then he gets in a car and then he realizes dude's in the car with him, come on, that's just great. That's terrible and great. (laughs) There is this weird vein of dark humor that permeates this movie. It's moments like that. It's, again, the moment where Claude Rains is running down the street singing children's rhymes. It also comes from the fact that a lot of the humor is all implied because he's naked. This is a movie about a naked man killing people. I am not even kidding, which I think is fantastic. In 1933, when you couldn't actually show any actual nudity, of course, you have a movie that's all about nudity, but you don't see it but it's implied in the fact that Claude Rains' character, in order to do what he wants to do, can't wear clothes. You're trying not to think about it, but you're thinking about it. Don't lie, you all are thinking about it. The only time I was thinking about it is when he sneaks into Kemp's room and he sits down on the chair and you see a butt imprint. And I was like, oh man, there's a naked butt on that chair. Bummer for that guy. He had much worse (laughs) things coming his way. Related to that chair moment, I would love to talk about, in addition to the idea of them shooting Claude Rain in the black velvet against the black velvet and the groundbreaking video imagery manipulation they were doing, but there's something so wonderfully tactile about watching the books fly across the room and watching a window open. Maybe it's a by-the-person thing. I found those things really effective and really enjoyable, and I definitely enjoyed them more because they were practical effects than I would in subsequent iterations, especially they're updating, they're currently filming the Lee Wanell Visible Man remake, and I highly doubt they're going to do anything practical, and I would very much love if they did the whole thing that way because the charm of that and of thinking how they're doing those things, it's just a nice internal thought to be having when you're watching it. Did you find any charm in that, or did you find it fake-looking? 
the effects in this for 1933 were amazing. And they were groundbreaking at the time. They're credited to John Fulton, John Mescal, and Frank Williams. What I appreciated the most is that making him disappear more than anything. They actually did a head and body cast of Claude Rains, and they made this mask, which they photographed against a background. They treated the film in a lab special to complete it. When he's doing things like taking his bandages off and ripping his face apart, and there's nothing under there. Those are the scenes that are what cement this as a horror film for me, because you're literally watching what you assume to be a human face being deconstructed. Some of the indentation effects, yes, are a bit chintzy, but it's 1933, so I can let those go. But the real work comes from those moments when he's actually in the process of becoming invisible and separating the audience from that physical world of seeing a person and seeing nothing. I actually agree with Kristen. I believe there are a couple parts where you can tell there's some special effects going on, especially when he's wearing a shirt and pants. Those in particular were a little bit glitchy, for lack of a better word. For the time, it's really unbelievable. Nobody even attempted to do anything like this before or since. It's absolutely commendable. And the fact that they could even think of that, the black velvet on black velvet, my mind doesn't work that way. I don't know whose does. They definitely should have won some Oscars for that. I don't know if they did. Do you consider this a horror movie or is it a science fiction film? I think it can be both. There are definitely some terrifying aspects of it. There's a comparison here. It's hard not to compare it to other universal villains because Frankenstein and the creature, I haven't seen Dracula, but Frankenstein and the creature specifically, if I heard the broadcast that they were in my town, I would not be too scared. They seem to choose their victims fairly deliberately and they're not too menacing. Frankenstein, his only murder happens on accident creature doesn't really he kind of kills people i wouldn't really be an intended target so i wouldn't be too scared of them now you have the invisible man who's killing hundreds of people willy-nilly i would be terrified dre what about you do you consider this more of a horror or a sci-fi film oh this is horror i don't know what part of it would be sci-fi other than it's science that maybe gets him into the mess in the first place It's definitely a horror film. It follows and it establishes a lot of the conventions and structure of what horror feels like. It's maybe not terrifying in the same way that modern horror can be, largely because of the different filmic safeguards you have of what people expected from film and the lack of gore. For what we know of horror, especially of this era, it's spot on. What about this seems like it could be sci-fi to you? It's what you said, the combination of science getting him into trouble. Absolutely. I think it's definitely sci-fi as well. It has to be. It follows that formula pretty perfectly, but it introduces those horror elements that are real and terrifying. Right. And when the book was published in 1897, the century was changing. There's this huge upheaval. You have electricity becoming something that was actually proliferating society. You had Charles Darwin coming up with his theory of evolution. So you have a lot of scientific discoveries changing people's thoughts. I'm sure somebody's going to roll their eyes when I sum up science fiction this way. I always say science being used to create a fictional narrative. It's not sci-fi in the sense of a space narrative, but I see it in the vein of science being used to tell a fictional tale. I never get scared watching this movie or even... But to that end, would you find a movie like The Theory of Everything to be a science yes, fiction? Yes, it is because it's so offensive to disabled people that I see everything as fictional in that film. <laughs> Beautiful. For me, science fiction isn't just a film that incorporates some kind of science. It's a film where there's world building. And I don't even mean like in space, but that there's a broader element. Obviously, H.G. Wells was very interested in science fiction, but his time machine stuff is much more fits a traditional mode of that than 
this, which I think is aiming for horror. That said, I'm interested in you guys reading it that way. I just would never see it like that. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. But what it leads me into is looking at how this movie in 1933 plays with the past, the present, and the future, considering that it's set in the late 1800s. Because you have that film's look at upheaval in terms of science. And then you have 1933, which was people being changed by the economy. And so you have these aristocrats playing God, Griffin and Dr. Kemp, these wealthy white guys. And then you have the townspeople who are more low income, who work for a living in the bar and don't seem to have any demonstrable means of wealth. Something similar that we had seen in the town's folk of the Bride of Frankenstein or even Dracula, but here there's more of this haves and have-nots that is more akin to Jekyll and Hyde, where Jekyll and Griffin are killing poor people. There's this belief that when Jekyll and Hyde, there was more apathy towards it, but here you actually have the local police trying to investigate and being stymied and being killed as well. But you have this urban life butting up against upper class people and the upper class people of course have all the knowledge and the technology whereas the poor people are just screaming like una o'connor who i know drea loves i find her so annoying in this movie because all she does is scream you're not shocked by characters like her because they're poor they don't know what's going on they don't have access to the journals that are telling people hey we're looking at developing invisibility stuff I like that contrast, but it's also coming about with the film in 1933, where you're having people who are losing their jobs, who don't have a lot of money, seeing these entitled wealthy people creating this invisibility serum to gain more power. There had to be some sort of political element to watching this movie because you're watching this character who is so mad with power and is so desperate to get more. That's all he wants, more. More murder, more power. Coming out at a time when people had nothing. And it's even relevant today, depending on your political thoughts. The invisible man, the man behind the curtain, the man who's doing all the stuff that might be screwing over the little guy. This movie is incredibly relevant to 1933 and to 2019. And I'd hate to bring privilege into the equation but we are reminded throughout the movie that he was part of this upper crust just look at his girlfriend for example she's high society all over and so he had the means to begin these experiments and basically to develop this serum without the means he wouldn't have been able to do it part of the way that he's displaying his power is having the money to develop this in the first place and then using it for bad. Here, here. It's one of the reasons they are remaking this now because it is culturally reflective. There's a lot to mine there in terms of subtext. There's a lot to explore for the horror of it too because clearly while I felt threatened at certain moments in a high tension, there are others who did not feel that way. It's a great movie to take on again but that's only if you're uh, open to remakes, which I don't know if you guys are. We've never really talked about that. <laughs> well, before we talk remakes, I did want to throw out, to go off of what you were saying, it goes back to the whole concept of his own self-interest and his greed. Do we think that the movie has a moral message? I would say no, because if you look at the movie through the lens of the haves and the have-nots, the people that have nothing are like, yeah, I know. I don't have access to this science. I have no interest in turning myself invisible. This guy got what was coming to him. The Invisible Man as a book is compared to a parable, which means that it needs to have some sort of moral message for those reading it. But I don't necessarily see it that way. If anything, it's this condemnation of science bringing about greed and self-centeredness. And the people that don't, have that in them who aren't wealthy enough to explore man's capabilities are just like, yeah, he had it coming. Do we think it has a message at the end? I think so, but they don't really rub it in your face. The basic theme here is 
don't experiment with science. Be a good Christian. Don't do bad things. That's about it. Yeah, those are always good takeaways. There's something here, too, about beyond accepted morality, playing with the dark side or people who have a single-minded vision of what they're creating may not help people. Like you could look at the current tech sector and say a lot of like, yes, you could do it, but does that mean you should? There's a lot to dig into with that. It's the Jurassic Park principle is what you're saying. Yes, everyone, (laughs) yes, the Jurassic Park principle, yes. And I mean, compared to Jekyll and Hyde, where that movie was all about man's dual nature, and that a man can and does and will lie and have this divided self. Jekyll goes and loves the nice society girl, but he's also, when he's Hyde, goes out to the brothel and is hanging out with prostitutes. This movie is saying that man's capacity for evil is also tempered, but it inhabits you regardless. Jekyll and Hyde, it's this concept of as long as you control yourself and you don't let that part of yourself out, man has this dual nature. Invisible Man's saying there's no way around that. If you get a taste for power and that's what you like, you will find any way to maintain that. It doesn't matter if you can compartmentalize Watching Claude Rains, who's this kind, cultured man, and if you've watched any of his movies, the man had range. He played everything. That is the lasting legacy, is that you can look at someone like Claude Rains and understand man's duality in one person, that he can play this great, nice dad in something like Four Daughters, but he can also play this bloodthirsty villain in The Invisible Man. So I feel like it takes on this meta twist almost without even meaning to. Did anybody else see that or am I just bonkers at this point? Uh, We've mentioned Claude Rains and his genius, but we really haven't taken the time to fully expand on the roles that he would take after this. It's so unbelievable. You call someone like Lon Chaney a man of a thousand faces, that could easily be applied to Claude Rains. Claude Rains is the talkies version. He literally played the Phantom. He played the corrupt senator in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He played the sort of innocent, sort of not guy in Lawrence of Arabia. You've got Casablanca, where he's very effeminate (laughs) and hilarious, even though he's supposed to be a villain. He has so many different sides to all of his characters. And that's so smart. And he pulls it off perfectly, no matter who he's playing. In case anybody's curious, they did do a sequel in 1940 called The Invisible Man Returns, but it had completely different actors and completely different characters. So it's a sequel to name only, but it does have Vincent Price as the new Invisible Man. John Sutton plays the brother of Claude Rains' character from The Invisible Man. You have the most tenuous of connections to the original film. Right, and I believe Nan Gray was the leading lady in that one. Yes. I guess you could say a friend of the podcast. We discussed her in Three Smart Girls in honor of her 100th birthday. That's right. And that same year in 1940, they also did a gender swap and did The Invisible Woman. Oh, okay. Uh I think I'm the only one who's seen that movie. It's got Virginia Bruce and John Barrymore. Charles Ruggles is in there, too. If memory serves, Virginia Bruce is a test subject for a machine that creates and it makes you invisible. She's this department store model who's been fired from this job. And she decides to become this guinea pig and the machine actually works. And she uses it to get back at the people that have wronged her. It's actually oddly subversive for 1940. And I would be really into them doing more with it. And of course, the movie takes a right turn away from social commentary and thugs try to kidnap her and, she gets involved in some shady stuff. It's actually really fun if you get the chance to see it. Universal has been trying to redo this movie for years. They announced in 2016 that Johnny Depp was going to star in a remake as part of their Dark Universe, which we've talked about. I've made fun of it on this podcast a time or two. I wanted to ask before we continue on, I was going to mention it myself if you didn't. I really want to know what you guys would have thought of that. Personally, I think Johnny Depp can play anything, so I don't think there would have been any issues there. But in my mind, I can't imagine the movie not in black and white. 
think I would have had a really big problem if they didn't do the bandages and the glasses and if they didn't do it in black and white. But other than that, I would have been really happy with it, I'm sure. What do you guys think? I hate Johnny Depp as a person. I would have not been into going to see it to begin with. But Johnny Depp aside, the concept of a remake, which they are moving forward with, I'm always a little skeptical about it. Because in 1933, the idea of an invisible man had different connotations. Because obviously we've talked about it as being a means for evil, but you also have in the 1930s the forgotten man, the man who has been ignored in the push for modernization and wealth. Nowadays, in 2019, I'm just like, okay, so it's the story of a guy who feels that he's ignored and then we have to feel bad for him. With the times and our relationship to masculinity, I have issues with it being remade at all because I feel like it's just going to be another woe is me ballad of the broken dude story. And I feel like we have enough of those. Well, my first thought is I'm with you on the Johnny Depp of it. I don't need to support that guy anymore. I'm back and forth overall on remake. Sometimes I think shouldn't be touched. And sometimes films like this, I think it's a nice way to dive into now that there's new film techniques. There's new things they can do. And this is a pretty sparse source material that to dig into them, if someone did it thoughtfully, could be really interesting. I'm interested to see the direction they go. Is that too political? Did I sound very cagey? No, no. In the new one, it's more female-centric. Elizabeth Moss is the actual lead of it, that she was in an abusive relationship with the scientist. It will be nice to see if they take some of the subtext and the threads and things that were there and really expand them in interesting ways. I will say, and maybe this is part of what Samantha means of wanting to see it in black and white, I'm less worried about if it's in black and white because I know they wouldn't do it that way because they're all evil. But like I said, I would love to see some actual practical effects, which will probably not be the case at all. But a girl can dream. That's a good point. If they added CGI to it, it could be more convincing. This is just my general take on CGI. To a certain point, they try to make it too realistic, and then it's not realistic. So that's probably how it would work. This is being remade, whether we like it or not, directed by Lee Wannell. It tells the story of Elizabeth Moss's character, who her abusive ex-boyfriend commits suicide, and she starts to rebuild her life. But she starts to question everything when she thinks that her boyfriend is not actually dead. I have real issues with this premise. (laughs) I love that premise. I think there's something there in terms of the idea of abusive relationships and how hard it is for women to get away from men and how they're not believed when they say that they're being haunted or abused. There's potential there. When you say it like that, it makes it sound less weird. And in case anybody's (laughs) curious, this was a role that was touted with my beloved Army Hammer in the lead, but he's not going to do it. They got Oliver Jackson Cohen, who you might know from the Haunting of Hill House Netflix series. He will be playing the Invisible Man in a movie that's not necessarily the Invisible Man, but it's kind of the Invisible Man. Yeah, and a small touch on that. We already did see Hollow Man, the Kevin Bacon remake in the the 2000s. And that was obviously not a literal in that they actually changed the name of it. But that one's a perfect example of uh, the CGI-ness of his bandages. It doesn't stack up. There's something about the tactile nature of the Claude Rains character unveiling or how awkward and weird. He's got that wig on under the bandages. Oh, it's incredible. Anyway. We will not allow Hollow Man besmirchment on this podcast. I watch it every year with my best friend on New Year's Eve. We watch it and we find something new to make fun of every single year. We have done this for several years now and we have found something new every single time. Come on, Drea, you're sacrificing practical effects, but you're also getting thermal imaging of a nude Kevin Bacon. Yeah, you're right. I did not bring this up to dog on Hollow Man. Obviously, it's sacred. (laughs) To throw in another Jurassic Park comparison, that explains perfectly a situation where you don't want to mess with CGI because the 
animatronics in Jurassic Park are amazing and totally convincing. Same with the Invisible Man in the original. Messing it up with CGI, I think, would be a bad move. But I don't throw my opinions out about modern actors very much. But I'm a really big fan of Elizabeth Moss, and she wouldn't do any remake that wasn't of some quality. I didn't know about it, but I'm excited about it now that you mentioned it. We have gone far off the beaten path with this movie, but we do have a listener question. This is from at precode.com. They ask, does Claude Rains being nude almost the entire movie make this an erotic film? Yes. Yes, it does. It depends on your kink. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. You don't even know what you're looking at. So it's hard to say. Or oh, I know what you mean, it. Sam. And it's making the movie all the funner. <laughs> I guess so. And keep in mind, this was Claude Rains' first film, basically. The audience didn't even know what he looked like. So it's kind of hard to fantasize about somebody. What if he looked like, I'm trying to think of a really ugly actor without sounding really mean. But what if he was not attractive is what I'm saying. What if that last fade out, they show him and he's... Bud Abbott or Lou Costello is what you're saying? That wouldn't have been my first thought. What was I trying to think of? (laughs) The first thing that popped in my head was Charles Lawton as Quasimodo. (laughs) I mean, he has a very sexy voice. Don't get me wrong. So I could see people going in that direction, but that wasn't my thought process, personally. These are good points that we demand even our invisible actors to be attractive. It's a hard (laughs) career. Oh my gosh, that shows how vain and cutthroat Hollywood is. And me, apparently. Final overall thoughts on The Invisible Man. It's not my favorite Universal monster movie, but it is worth a watch purely because of how much of an outlier I think it is in the grand scheme of Universal horror film. It's definitely worth a watch. It's 71 minutes. You could do worse. I don't think it's many modern people's favorite in comparison to everything else. Drea, Sam, what are your final takeaways? I'm a fan of this one. It's a great building block to have in your arsenal, both as a film fan and as a horror film fan. There's a lot to be learned from it. It's just an enjoyable, as we mentioned, 71 minute view. Claude Rains is superb. I love seeing Gloria Stewart. Gotta throw that out there. By the way, as far as Una O'Connor, she literally screams her head off in every movie (laughs) or is otherwise obnoxious. But she's great in it as well. She's a goddess among us and I learn yearn to be able to scream like that it's all i want and it's all you guys should not want okay i have to say i love her but if anything she grabs your attention whenever she's on screen so that counts for something there's so many good things to love about this movie the era the effects claude rains can i say claude rains again i just love it it's it's so hard to compare this two creature but they are right up there as my top two favorite universal films and i also want to mention really quick that i introduced my sister to this film if i remember correctly she didn't have any real expectations she thought it was going to be okay even though i told her it was amazing and i believe this is one of if not her favorite universal films so i'm slowly spreading the word about the invisible man and how amazing and underrated it is Let us know your thoughts on The Invisible Man, Claude Rains, whether it's an erotic feature. You can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the next episode. And if you want to get a copy of The Invisible Man and help support Ticklish Biz, you can do it through our Amazon code. Just head over to amazon.com slash shop slash journeys underscore film. Any purchases you make using that code, get us a little extra dollars in our Patreon, and we could certainly use more of them. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you, find out more about your work? I blog at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. Really interesting stuff happening on Cooking with the Stars. Next month for October, I celebrate my first horror lady, who is actually Gloria Stewart, the co-star of this film. If you want to find out some really amazing things about her life, I know I did. Definitely check out that post on ClassicMovieHub.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at ClassicFilmGeek.
I feel like this was all just to promote Sam's Cooking with the Stars column on Gloria Stewart now that I'm hearing about it. It was a total (laughs) coincidence. I chose this film and then I realized, oh, I have to find somebody for Cooking with the Stars. And the last two years, I always have celebrated a horror icon. First year I did Vincent Price and then last year I did Boris Karloff. And then I was like, okay, where are the women? So I couldn't find anything on Elsa Lanchester. She was my first choice. Couldn't find any recipes for Julia Adams either. She was my second choice. So I ultimately went with Gloria Stewart. And I'm really glad I did because I found out so much. She attempted to join the Communist Party. She was one of the people who started the Screen Actors Guild. She was a chef, an artist. You can read all about it. I'm not trying to promote it, but... It was a really interesting coincidence because I found out so much about her while I was preparing for this. So it worked out. And Drea Clark, where can fans find out more about you online? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And I also host a weekly podcast of contemporary films called Who Shot Ya? That's me. No cooking, sadly. No cooking and no Gloria Stewart. And you can follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can also check out my official website where I discuss classic films regularly, journeysandclassicfilm.com. And you can find out about what's happening on the podcast over on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And as always, if you want to learn more about upcoming episodes, hear exclusive content before anyone else, get buttons, head over to Patreon to support Ticklish Business there. We have a ton of amazing perks. If you have been following us on Twitter, you'll know that everybody is slowly receiving their special limited edition Marilyn Monroe buttons that Sam designed for us that was available to everybody who has supported us. If you want buttons, all you have to do is donate $5 a month and you get all sorts of amazing things, including access to a host of interviews. We have an interview coming up with director Robert Ackerman, who helmed the 2001 Judy Garland biopic, Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows. And I do two bonus podcasts. Yes, we do two extra shows on here. William Bibiani and I talk about how Hollywood talks about itself in movies with the show based on a true podcast. And Adam Kautzer and I talk about the films that Hollywood does again and again and again on Doubled Features. I also have my TCM Classic Film Festival audio, all sorts of amazing things. That's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Next time we are talking about more horror. We're actually going forward in time all the way to 1967. We're going to go from not being able to see an invisible man to not being able to see it all. Because we were talking about the Audrey Hepburn star, Wait Until Dark. And we were going to have a special guest. Has everybody seen this? Oh, I've definitely seen it. Crazy enough, it's another movie that I recommended to my sister. It's weird (laughs) how I keep telling her to watch horror films. It's like subversive, maybe. Well, that will be next time. Till then. (laughs) 